following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. Second Peter, chapter 2, this morning. Second Peter is towards the end of the Bible, for those of you who might be new to the Bible. Second Peter, chapter 2. I'd like to begin by reading in your hearing the life-giving Word of God, the faith-arousing Word of God, the mind-renewing words of the true and living God. As we make our way through 2 Peter, we come this morning to verses 4 through the first sentence of verse 10. But for the sake of understanding the context of this passage, I'd like to begin by reading in verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verses 1 to 3 
end on the note that God will condemn and destroy those who pervert his truth, those who propagate lies, and those who lead others astray. False teachers will be judged. And based on verse 2, we know that those who follow their sensual ways will also be destroyed with them. That's the note that verses 1 to 3 ends on. God will have the last word in judgment. And now that we come to verses 4 through 10, Peter drives this point home by essentially saying to his readers, we know that God will have the last word in judgment. Just look to history and history will reinforce this reality. Structurally speaking, this paragraph that begins in verse 4 is one long sentence in the Greek. And it's essentially one long if-then statement. You all know what an if-then statement is. If this is the case, if this is the case, if this is the reality, then this is the outcome. That's what this is here. There are basically four ifs. You'll notice in verse four, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, verse five, if he did not spare the ancient world, verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and verse seven, and if he rescued righteous lot, and all of these if clauses come to a conclusion by the massive then statement in verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If, 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 then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's the point Peter is driving home in this paragraph. God knows how to rescue his people and to bring retribution or judgment to his enemies. God knows what he's doing. That's the point. And so I've entitled this message, Rescue and retribution, which is taken right out of verse 9. As Peter points his readers to three historical accounts of God's judgment, you'll notice that he lays everything out in chronological order. First, he mentions the account of the fallen angels, which takes us back to Genesis chapter 6. Then he mentions the account of Noah's flood, which takes us to Genesis 7. And then he mentions the account of Sodom and Gomorrah being turned to ashes, which takes us to Genesis 19. So Peter seems to be moving along in chronological order, but he also seems to be thinking from the broad to the narrow. The examples that Peter gives us of judgment, they they seem to gradually reduce in scale from the cosmic judgment of fallen angels through the widespread judgment of the the flood in Noah's day and down to the specific particular judgment of the local cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. History, and more importantly, biblical history, speaks volumes to us today to where things are going in the future. In other words, what God has done in the past gives us confidence for how he'll act in the present and what he'll do in the future. I repeat that. What God has done in the past gives us confidence for how he'll act in the present and what he will do in the future. 
Now, this has implications that are very important. For one, on a personal level, Paul says, I am sure of this. I'm positive of this. I am certain of this, regarding this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So he looks to the past and says, if God has begun a good work in you, bringing you to faith, bringing you to repentance, satisfying your deepest longings through the person and work of his son, he will bring that good work to completion. The past, uh, uh, past acts of God's grace gives us present confidence that he will finish what he has started. And when it comes to the coming of Christ, this is also important. As Hebrews 9 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once, that's the past, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, there's the future, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we see that the past, God sending his son to to deal with sin, gives us confidence that he will one day wrap this entire thing up by bringing us to himself at last. He will finish what he started. This is what Peter is essentially arguing for in his entire letter. If you want to skip ahead, turn to chapter 3 with me and let's look at verse 1 and following. The point that Peter is arguing in these verses that we're looking at today is that the previous outpourings of God's judgment provide proof that he will pour out his judgment again. The previous outpourings of God's judgment provide proof that it will be poured out again. Just look at history, and that's what Peter points us to. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 with me. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And now notice how Peter points to history in pointing us to the future. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the, word that, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, now notice how he points us to the future based on the past. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are reserved for fire, being kept until the judgment day, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter points us to the past. This is essentially a history lesson, but not just a history lesson for the sake of history. It's a history lesson for the sake of telling us, assuring us 
what will happen in the future and what will continue in the present, what will continue in the present. And so I want, I want to put before you this morning four considerations. I want you to consider first the account of the fallen angels, then consider the account of the ancient flood, then consider the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then what we're going to end on this morning is considering the, uh, the sovereign control of our almighty creator. First of all, then, I want you to consider the account of the fallen angels in verse 4. Notice verse 4. Peter begins with that word for because he's connecting it to the thought of verses 1 to 3, which ended on the note, you remember, that God will judge his enemies. And one thing I didn't point out last week in verse 3 is that Peter seems to personify condemnation. And, and, and it's a sen- in a sense, he's like painting condemnation as this, this, this monster who is not idle. He's making his way towards his enemies. Condemnation is not sitting idle. It, it, it's coming. Destruction, it's like he presents destruction as a giant that is not asleep. We know that ultimately God is the one who will judge. And so this is Peter's way of saying condemnation and judgment are coming to God's enemies. It's coming. And now he gives us three examples of how we know it's coming. And the first example is the account of the angels who fell, the fallen angels. Notice verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the judgment. Again, that connects us to the then statement in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and how to judge his enemies. But example number one is the account of the fallen angels. And this, Peter's point, is that no one is exempt from judgment. Not even the angels. Now, this is a strange strange portion of God's word, foreign to many ears today, strange in our hearing, right? We, we often don't talk about the fallen angels, but I, what I, you know, there's basically two interpretations of this passage. One says that this is the account of the original fall of the angels from heaven when they sinned in the presence of God and God cast them down like lightning to the earth. I don't think that's that's what Peter's talking about here. I think that Peter and Jude, the fact that we know that Jude was well acquainted with the the, the Jewish tradition, the first Enoch, the account, the interpretation of much of Genesis, that that's where he's going with this. Because Jude mentions this thing as well. If you want to turn to the right, go to the book of Jude. It's right before the book of Revelation. And let's see what Jude has to say about these angels as well. Because we're going to put together this puzzle and seeking to understand what these brothers are talking about. Jude's only one chapter, and so we can't say Jude chapter this. It's just Jude 6. So Jude verse 6, notice. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
So whatever they did, we don't know what they did, at least from this passage. We know that they sinned. We know that they did not stay within their allotted position of authority. They, they, they went out of bounds, in other words. They transgressed. That's the word. They, they transgressed God's line. They, they crossed that line. Whatever that was, we're going to see it described, I believe, in Genesis chapter 6. So they did not stay within their own position of authority. They left their proper dwelling. So back to 2 Peter. These angels sinned and God did not spare them. Now this should awaken us to some glorious reality here. When the angels sinned, God did not provide them a savior. God did not provide them a redeemer. And yet when our first parents sinned, God mercifully provided us a savior, which tells us that God did not need to send us a savior. We were not entitled to a savior. We were not entitled to deliver to deliverance. We were not entitled to salvation. The fact that God sent us a savior to bring us out of the pit of sin and death, to bring us to sit with him in the heavenly places is sheer mercy, grace, pure, unmingled love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is pure love. He did not have to send us a savior. Many people confuse that today. They think, well, because, because God is love, he was under obligation to save us. No, friends, he would have been perfectly, eternally happy within the community of the Trinity and the company of angels to have damned the entire human race and live happily ever after, so to speak, in eternal glory. And yet he chose, he planned before it all began to send us a savior, but not these angels. He didn't spare them. He didn't hold back. He cast them into hell, which your Bible should have a footnote there. The Greek word is not Gehenna. The, the typical word for hell is the word Tartarus which in Greek mythology was a place for these, these uh, fallen angels and uh, the gods who were wicked and corrupt. They would send them to this place called Tartarus. And Peter seems to be drawing from their, their background to help them understand that these fallen angels have been put, locked up in a place of darkness until the judgment of the great day. They're in chains some translations say dungeons. The reality is basically the same. They're being reserved for judgment. Tragic. We know that heaven is a place of light. We know that angels are angels of light. And yet now, notice what sin does. It reverses the entire order here. And now they are in Darkness. You see, sin reverses God's good order in the world. It takes image bearers and defiles them to shattered images. It takes angels who are dwelling in immortal light, beautiful light, immortality, and it brings them down in dungeons, in gloomy darkness, thick, black darkness. And that will be their fate ultimately forever. Now, I believe that what Peter is referring to is the account of Genesis chapter 6. 
And one of the reason I believe that is because not only are Peter and Jude acquainted with the writings of First Enoch, which we don't have in our Bibles, but it was a typical uh, tradition. Most Jews believed um, the traditions in First Enoch. I think we get uncomfortable today. I'm, I'm not as uncomfortable with it now having taught through First Peter, where we learned in chapter 3 of these angels. Um, one thing I want to point you to is just turn left to First Peter chapter 3. I want you to see something else here. We're putting this puzzle together, asking who, what is the deal with these angels? Verse 18 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, notice, as, notice how Peter describes the victory, the triumph of Christ. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit. And now notice this, in which, that is in that spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And he's not done there. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So sometime after the triumph of Christ. After his death and resurrection, he went and proclaimed, which the word for proclaimed here is not the typical word for preach in the New Testament. This was often used to describe a triumphant proclamation. A king has overcome. A, an army has, has conquered. So presumably he is proclaiming victory to these spirits who are in prison somewhere. Now the word, every time we find the word spirits, unless it's being qualified by something like the spirits of just men made perfect in Hebrews chapter 11. This is primarily used in the, New, in the New Testament regarding angels, spirits. Now, here's what I think happened. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, Bene Elohim, that's used elsewhere uh, in Job to refer to angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. In other words, the countdown started 120 years and the flood will wipe them all away. The Nephilim or giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, strange account, right? (laughs) Kind of hard to wrestle with. But based on Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, the common theme, the common agreement, I guess you could say, amongst the commentators is that just before the flood, actually about 120 years before the flood, these angels left their proper dwelling, their proper abode, and apparently possessed human beings, men, and began to take women however they wanted and to marry them and and to try to create offspring. Now, whether the the Nephilim are the product of these offspring or not, there's a lot of arguments there that no, the Nephilim were already in the world at that point. But whatever happened at this point, it obviously, the connection between verse two and three provoked God to destroy the world. Things got that bad. It's not It's not just a matter of, oh, this happened, and then the Lord said, my spirit will not always abide in man. No, something happened, and, and what's interesting is I would encourage you to go and read this account in Enoch's account. And he actually mentions how these angels not only came down, but they began to teach magic arts to the people there. And... You know, when you when you put this whole thing together, it appeared that these angels came down from heaven. They left their proper abode. And they, they, they desired to make offspring with women. Now, remember, the last time we read about offspring and women bearing offspring was Genesis chapter three, where we were told that the Redeemer would come. The, 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 the one to crush the head of Satan would come through the offspring of the woman. And so I stand with good brothers in saying that I believe what's happening here is that knowing that promise that the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Rescuer, the Snake Crusher, the Serpent Crusher would come through the line of the woman. And so perhaps in an attempt to stop that from happening, the plan of the evil one and his henchmen would come and seek to poison that line of humanity so as to prevent the offspring of Eve from coming to crush the head of the serpent. So this was that rebellion that came forth to stop the Messiah from coming. This is all theory, again, based on these several passages and clues that we have throughout the Bible. And so when Christ overcame in his death and in his resurrection, where did he go first? To the prison. As if to say, you failed. I overcame. And by the end of 1 Peter 3, we see him elevated higher than angels and authorities and powers. And so I believe this is what's going on. I believe this is what Peter is alluding to. Again, based on the chronology of what Peter's laying out here, the fallen angels, the flood, and then the filthy cities, that seems to be what's going on here. If you want to go back and and, and see my points of argument, you can go back to the Recordings in First Peter chapter three. I did a three-part series on this passage, but back to Second Peter chapter two. Thank you for indulging me there. It's just a fascinating study to me, anyways. Second Peter chapter two. First example: If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but 
cast them into Tartarus, hell, some place of confinement. They're in chains. They're in a dungeon of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's example number one. Let's go to example number two. We've seen the account of the fallen angels. Let's consider the account of the flooded world. The account of the flooded world. Verse five says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Again, the then of verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this second example of the flood now, he did not spare the ancient world. Very similar language. He did not spare the angels and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, rescued Noah. And it calls Noah here a herald of righteousness. Now, this is the only place that we read of Noah being a preacher, a herald of righteousness, righteousness, perhaps calling the people in his day to repentance, to be right before God, to turn from their ways and to turn to God. Righteousness is the theme of Romans, by the way. It's the gospel of God's righteousness. The theme of Romans is righteousness for the unrighteous. It was what Paul preached before even kings. He spoke to them of self-control and righteousness. Was Noah preaching or was his hammer doing the preaching? We don't know. The hammer was definitely doing the preaching as he's building this massive ark. We know that there was mockery. We know that he looked like a fool in the land. He looked like a complete moron. And so there was mockery and scoffing. And yet Noah continued obeying the voice of God, building this ark. And people were continuing, as we read in Matthew's account, buying, selling, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, all the way until Noah entered the ark. And as Jesus says, the flood came and swept them all away. So God did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, whether he was preaching with his voice, preaching with his hammer, preaching with saws and tools. He preserved Noah and he preserved seven others. You remember Noah's family when God, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now we notice now the type of world that then existed. It's designated by this word ungodly or godless first century believers second century christians would often use this word ungodly to describe atheists those living without reference to god now this is not only atheists we know that it's anyone who just refuses to acknowledge and honor and give thanks to god as romans 1 says Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them over. God gave them over. God delivered them over to their own destruction. So that's the account of the flood. Let's go to example number three. The account now of the filthy cities. 
Look at verse 6. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Again, I point you to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So this is the third example. You've seen it go from broad, a little bit more narrow, to now narrow, right? Cosmic judgment of the angels, global judgment in the flood, local judgment within these cities and the plains as they're referred to in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah. He condemned them to extinction. But it was not just a, an empty, purposeless judgment. He says that they serve as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. God was establishing not just his righteousness and his justice in that day. He was also laying down an example. Look to Sodom and Gomorrah. God was essentially saying and is essentially saying as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, I do want to point you back to Genesis 19 because some of you I, I know probably aren't as familiar with this. So go to Genesis 19 with me. Genesis chapter 19. purpose of all of this history in Peter's mind is to point us to certainty regarding the future. Genesis chapter 19. I want to begin by reading verse 27 and following in chapter 18, because this is where essentially it begins. God is having a conversation with Abraham. You remember, Abraham is Lot's uncle. He knows that he's there. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? Remember, God, and it began back in 22, actually, where Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep it away and not, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, God, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. But far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? So he brings the number down to 45. And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he said to him, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there in the entire city. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way and he, when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the, in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. You all know what that means. There were homosexuals wanting sexual intercourse with Lot's guests, these two angels. And he said, well, Lot went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door behind him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's now become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Can you imagine the degree of lust burning within these men in Sodom? Instead of walking away in this blindness, they wear themselves out in the door because they're at the door trying to open the door because their lust is burning hot. Then the man said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. 
but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Let's go back to Second Peter. That's history lesson number two. To points to the fact that God has judged in the past. He will judge in the future. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. He not only condemned them to extinction, but he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, this is huge because at this point, you should be asking yourself, am I godly or am I ungodly? It doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, if you refer to yourself as saved. The question is, are you godly? Does your life revolve around God? Are you oriented around the things of God? Do you think the things of God? Does does that occupy your mind? What consumes your mind? What consumes your thinking? That's a good indicator regarding your state being either godly or ungodly. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized, if you've been, you know, you've repeated the silly sinner's prayer, whatever it is, are you godly? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you living on the words of God? Not merely by hearing them, but you actually do them. That's what James says. Don't just be a hearer of the word, deceiving yourself, be a doer of the word. I'm not insinuating any kind of legalism here. I hear the word, I obey the word. Do you delight in Christ? Do you delight in knowing God? Do you consider knowing God the greatest treasure in this world? Do you consider the hope of being with him the thing that purifies your heart and your, your, your mind now? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Are you godly? Are his words like honey and and honeycomb to you? Is his word like daily bread to you that without it, you're empty, you're famished, you're starving? It's an indication, an indicator that you're a godly man, a godly woman. Now, this doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean, you know, we're not talking about perfection per se. We're talking about the direction of your life is it godward is it pointing to scripture is your is your life being saturated with prayer and praise and thanksgiving to god 
Are you a godly man, a godly woman, a godly teenager? If not, the only alternative is that you're among the ungodly. And what happened at Sodom is an example of what's going to happen to you. No matter what you tell yourself now, no matter what kind of false security you have, the only secure position is Christ. Your only security against such an outcome is Christ. You can't point to anything in your life and say, well, I'm godly because of this. If it has nothing to do with Christ and his work for you and in you, then it's, it's, it's a vain hope. This is what's going to happen to the ungodly. Now, the next if, the fourth if, is there in verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot. That's puzzling as well, isn't it? What we just read in Genesis 19 does not describe a righteous man, at least in my thinking. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Is that God justifies people when they believe his word, when they believe him. The gospel is the gospel by which the ungodly can be justified and made declared righteous in God's sight. You see, we who champion the beauty of justification by faith, that is, being declared righteous in the sight of God by faith alone in Christ alone, we get in a ruffle when we hear of righteous lot, when we should get in a ruffle when we hear of righteous you and righteous me. You say, well, Lot gave his kids over. He gave his daughters over. We're gonna was gonna offer his virgin daughters to these homosexual men to to do whatever they desire to do with them. That's wicked. What do many Christian parents give their children over to today? What do you give yourself over to? We are justified. The same righteousness that just that justified Lot. There are indication indicators in that story that, I mean, good signs of uh, of godliness, right? The desire, strong desire to show hospitality. The fact that he would come to this door and call these men out as being wicked. What you're doing is wicked. Obviously, passing some form of judgment on them to where they. He provokes them to call him the judge. There are indications that he's a godly man, even though we're often just taken aback by the wicked act of offering his daughters to these men. But he rescued righteous Lot, it says. He delivered him out of the city. And notice this description of Lot there in verse 7. tells us he was greatly distressed. Greatly burdened, greatly in turmoil, in great turmoil, turmoil, inner turmoil, by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And now he explains that a little bit more. He says, for as that righteous man, two times calling him righteous here, right? As that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Apparently, while he was there, he was not well. 
And this is crazy because if you read the earlier chapters of Genesis, when Lot was given the choice of where to go, he had chosen to go and live near Sodom and Gomorrah. And they weren't great cities even then. And so Lot made this poor decision to live. And eventually you read the story and he migrates into the city. But while he was there, his soul was being tormented by the things he was seeing, the things he was hearing. He was in anguish because of their unrighteousness. If you want to pass judgment on Lot for whatever reason, you need to ask yourself, are you in torment over the things you're seeing and hearing in the world today? Is your soul in turmoil, troubled, deeply distressed by the things you see? Or have you just come to be comfortable with the things you see and hear? Have you become insulated against these things? Are these things just, that's ah, normal. It's normal to see two men together in love. It's normal to see two women together in love. It's normal to see these things. It's normal to see broken families. It's normal to see adultery. It's normal to see this and that on the television. Friends, I fear that we in the American church today have become so compromised so comfortable with the sin of our culture that it doesn't even shake us anymore. It doesn't even move us. There's no shock value anymore when it comes to sin. And yet for, for Lot, amidst all his flaws and all of his shortcomings, he at least had this. He could identify with Psalm 119 who said, the psalmist who said there, my, my eyes overflow with streams of, with rivers of water for the wicked who do not walk in your law, O Lord. He had, he had that. Friends, this is an example of what godliness is. Living among the world and being in torment over the lawless deeds that we see and hear. As we come to the conclusion now, we have considered the account of the fallen angels, the account of the flooded world, the account of these filthy cities, and now we come to the account of God in his sovereign control. Consider the sovereign control of Almighty God. Look at verses 9 and 10 as we conclude. Again, this is the then statement that concludes the previous four if statements. And by the way, in the Greek, there's only one if, and it's at the beginning of verse four. That in our English translations, they've tried to help us to see that there's an if statement in verse four, in five, in verse six, and in verse seven. If God did not spare angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, and if he rescued righteous Lot, verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We saw him rescue Noah, and we saw him rescue Noah's family. We saw him rescue Lot, and we saw him rescue Lot's daughters. Then the Lord knows how to rescue his people, to deliver his people. Now, this would have been important for Peter's readers to hear, because in their minds, not only was the world corrupt, was the world, had, had the world gone astray, but they're starting to see the church being infiltrated with false teachers who are introducing all manner of sexual sin and sensuality. 
And so imagine the church in Peter's day. I mean, it's one thing to have a pure, to be, a, to be amongst a pure people who, who can say, thank God that these things aren't happening here. But because of the infiltration of false teaching and sin, it was as if the church was thinking, it's here too. It's all around us. It's not just in the world. It's infiltrated the ranks of the church. Peter says, listen, the Lord knows how to deliver you. And the word trials here in the Greek is, is, is really tricky because it's this, the same word that he uses here is temptation elsewhere in the New Testament. Temptation and trial. So, you know, how, where Peter's going with this, it's, 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 it's all over the... the um, It could be all over the place. He could be saying that the Lord knows how to rescue you from trials, hardships, or he knows how to rescue the godly from temptations. And I would say both of those are true. The trial in the church in Peter's day was that false teachers had infiltrated the church and they 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 were propagating blasphemous heresies, destructive heresies. Many were chasing after their sensuality. And no doubt there would have been temptation in the church's part, on the church's part, to just give in to these sensual practices. Everyone's doing it. No one's pure. Everyone's doing it. Let's just let's just live according to the way the culture's living. And, and the way according to the way that many within the church are living. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver you from these temptations. The Lord knows how to rescue you from these temptations. And he knows how to deliver you from trials. Ultimately, we know that the, the ultimate deliverance will be the deliverance that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about. That ultimate deliverance from temptation and this trial in this present world will be the coming of Christ who will come to do what? To relieve his saints. To bring relief and rest to his saints. No more temptations. No more trials. Christ comes once and for all to take his people to himself and glorify them with himself. That will be the ultimate way of God rescuing the godly from trials and temptations. But he also does it presently, does he not? With every temptation, he provides a way of escape. What temptations right now are buffeting your mind and your heart, believer? And I want you to know that God is saying, I know how to rescue you from these trials. And you might say, well, that's good that you know, but I need to know. He has told you, oh man, what is good? How to walk humbly with your God. He has told you in his word how to escape temptation. Listen, you're not called to fight sexual sin. You're called to flee sexual sin. So many people get tripped up because they're like, I I gotta fight this, I gotta fight this. You're called to flee. You're called to run. You're too weak. Flee. Flee to the word. Flee to brothers. Sisters, flee to your sisters in Christ. Flee to prayer. Flee to thanksgiving. Flee the situation. He knows how to deliver the godly from trials and temptations. But there's another side to this coin. As we consider the sovereign control of the almighty creator, he knows how to deliver the godly. But he also noticed the next half of the verse. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Which could mean one or two things here in the Greek. It could mean that right now the unrighteous who have perished 
are in a place of punishment even now. And you get that from Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus dies and he goes to be with Abraham. And there's comfort there and there's peace there. The rich man dies, not because he's rich, but because he was ungodly, because he was godless. He dies and he goes to this place of conscious torment. And there he finds himself in anguish and agony, asking for just one drop of water to, to relieve his anguish. And not even that would be given to him. And that's not even the lake of fire yet. That's just a temporary holding cell. And it's, it's agonizing. In that place, he also longs for messengers to be sent up to his family. Go warn my, my, my family. Go warn my brothers. Go warn my father. I don't want them to come to this place. So he has memory. There's, there's, there's recollection there after you die. And there's conscious torment. The memory itself would be torment. But then there's the fire of torment on top of that. So it could mean that right now there's wicked people under temporary punishment that will lead to the eternal punishment. Or it could just mean that God is holding, in a Romans 1 sense, the unrighteous under his wrath, having given them over to their lusts, having given them over to strange passions, and having, them given, having given them over to a debased mind. There's like a temporary judgment on earth taking place right now where God has already given people over to the pursuit of their lusts. And that is, that's just as bad. Because when God hands you over in a temporary judgment, a judicial hardening of your heart right now, that's a, that's a horrible place to be. It's just as bad as being in the place of eternal punishment because once God has handed you over we have no indication indication in scripture that there's any chance of salvation at that point he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment or for punishment until the day of judgment and notice how he concludes the verse and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Two sins mentioned here. The lust, the inner burnings of defiling passion, inner burnings that defile you, that make the image of God in you uh, to become shattered. It defiles you. It makes you unclean. It makes you unhealthy. It ruins you. It defaces you. It defiles you. That's what lust does defiling passion now he's obviously referring to sexual immorality because in all of the examples he's given from history they've had to do with sexual immorality the sin of the angels the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and even the sin of what was happening before the flood Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart in that day was only evil continually. He knows how to keep them under punishment and for punishment, especially those who indulge. The, the idea is that there's no restraint. There's no restraint when it comes to sexual sin. There's no self-control. It's just 
full pursuit of your pleasures that defile you and defile your mind and defile your heart. And notice the second sin mentioned. They despise authority. They despise authority. And notice he doesn't mention they despise the authority of God's word or they despise the authority of the church or they despise the authority of this or that. No, they just despise authority in general. And therefore, they don't submit to God's authority. They don't submit to the authority of his word. They don't submit to any kind of human authority. They despise authority. And that is one of the chief characteristics of the ungodly. They despise authority. No one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to direct my life. No one's going to tell me where to go, what to believe. That shows that you despise authority. Friends, God's authority is what liberates us. When we submit to his authority, we don't become bound, burdened slaves. When we submit to and humble ourselves before God's authority, we become the freest people on the planet. We bear fruit for his glory. We enter into fellowship with him in the heavenly places. We're useful and effective, as we learned early on in chapter one, when we submit to his authority. But the mark of the ungodly here is that they despise authority and they defile themselves by indulging in the lust of their hearts. Now, God knows how to keep his people, and he knows how to keep his enemies for the day of judgment. What is this saying to us today? It's saying that even though judgment is inevitable, it is not inescapable. It is inescapable. Even though it's inevitable, it still is escapable. You, you can escape God's coming judgment. The godly will escape punishment. The question you need to be asking yourself today is, how do I become numbered with those who are godly? You become godly by one, recognizing that you first and foremost are ungodly by nature. You are godless by nature. And just, just notice, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to be the worst of the worst, a murderer, a this or that, a, a thief. I'm just saying, notice how you've been content to live without, ref, without God. You've been content to live without reference to God. Being ungodly doesn't have to make you this, you know, this, this gothic, satanic, you know, this cult member. Being ungodly just means that you're content to go without giving thanks to God. To go without praising God. To, to, to just view yourself as, as, as the end of everything. The center of the universe. You become godly. Not by any effort of your own, but by turning away from yourself and your sin and fleeing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who even now is reigning at the right hand of the, of the God of heaven and earth. He was crucified for sinners. He was raised triumphantly by the power of God, and he has seated him at his right hand from where he calls all people everywhere, including here today, to turn from your sin and to seek refuge in Christ. And if you do that, you will find him to be a gracious savior who blesses you with righteousness, resurrection, eternal life, and eternal blessedness in the presence of God. 
we need to ask ourselves, how can we, living in a world like Lot lived in, how do we cultivate, like Lot did, a hatred for sin? How do we cultivate and maintain that shock factor when it comes to sin? You see, it was an old theologian who said that one of the greatest defenses against sin is by maintaining its shock value. Maintaining that sense of shock when you sin. And there's five things that come to mind in terms of how to cultivate and maintain this shock factor when it comes to sin. Number one, consider often the nature of sin. Consider often the nature of sin. What is sin at its very core? It is a spit in the face of the almighty God who rules over all things. It is a refusal to have him reign his way for his glory. Sin says, I deserve to reign. You deserve to bow to me. You, God, deserve to bow to me. You should bow to me. That's what sin says. Sin says, I am king. You are servant. Serve me. Serve my ends. That's essentially what every sin says. Consider, secondly, that sin opposes God. Sin is an assault on God. It's a refusal to have him be who he is as the Almighty One. Sin opposes his goodness. Sin opposes his righteousness. Sin opposes his holiness. Sin provokes his justice. Sin mocks his omniscience. Sin says, though you know all things, I'm going to do it anyways. Sin mocks and scoffs at his, at his omnipresence. I know you're there, God, but I don't care what you see. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to think it. I'm going to tolerate it in my mind, in my heart. Sin, thirdly, consider the fact that sin opposes the sacrifice of Christ. Christ died for sin, and for us to then indulge in sin is to spit in the face of our bleeding, dying Savior. If he died for our transgressions and we go and coddle those transgressions and, and, and refuse to put those transgressions to death, we stand before his cross just like those who were opposing him in that day, spitting upon his face. Fourthly, sin not only opposes the sacrifice of Christ, the attributes of God, but sin opposes our good. Sin is an attack on your good. It's self-destructive. Sin is cosmic suicide. Sin is destructive to all of God's good purposes in your life. Fifthly, sin opposes the prayers of our high priest. He ever lives, Hebrews 7 says, to make intercession for us. Christ is always faithfully, selflessly, graciously, and mercifully pleading and interceding for you and all of you who are in Christ. He intercedes for you. He prays for you. So for you to willingly entertain and indulge in sin is to knowingly oppose the prayers of your high priest. And lastly, consider the end of sin. Consider where it ends. 
opposing God, opposing the sacrifice of Christ, opposing yourself in indulging in a self-destructive pattern of behavior against God and against yourself, it ends in eternal separation from the goodness of God in a place of, cause, uh, a place of conscious torment forever. In other words, God, you, you want to live without reference to God now? Sadly, you're going, to get your, you're going to get your desire at the end of the day, at the end of the age. You will be without the goodness of God. You won't be without the presence of God. Because as you read Revelation chapter 14, hell is horrifying because of the presence of God there in conscious torment, in righteous wrath. It's not the devil who is roaming hell wreaking havoc on those inhabitants of hell it is the wrath of almighty god that makes hell hell and yet in his mercy he has provided you a way of escape and it's found only in his son jesus christ and everyone who calls upon the name of christ will be saved consider the outcome of sin it brings temporary pleasure and eternal misery it brings temporary satisfaction but eternal pain separation, loss, and ruin. That's Peter's point here, is that God will judge his enemies, and we've seen it in the past, but he will also rescue and deliver his people. So let us, as his people, continue to look to him and trust in him as we anticipate the judgment of the great day, which will be for the believer the best day, but for the unbeliever, the ungodly, the worst day. Let's stand.